Hey everyone, this is Kevin Islin, and you are listening to another episode of Folk Stories. Folk Stories is a podcast where we have long-form conversations with founders, innovators, and top performers. We talk about how they got here, what they do, and the stories that they have to share. Today, my guest is Grant Farwell, chairman and co-founder of Matrogino an esports platform that helps game publishers and tournament organizers run successful esports tournaments. Prior to Matrogino, Grant founded Bark, which was a social web browsing experience for people browsing the same websites. This was before the rise of services like Discord and Slack and offered much of the same functionality. Grant says that while they had a solid technical base, they struggled with sales and monetization, this led them to shut down Bark and start Matrogino instead. In today's episode, we talk about the esports industries and challenges that tournament organizers face. We talk about doing sales and startups, and we talk about brands and sponsorships in esports. Now, without any further ado, I give you Grant Farwell. Grant, welcome to Folk Stories. Thank you so much. One place I wanted to start off with, when I was looking you up on LinkedIn, there was a picture of you on a camel. Can you tell us about the camel? And Yeah, it's, um, it's a really funny picture because that picture has, done, has, has been a part of my life in a lot of interesting ways. For instance, I just got married a couple weeks ago. That was my Tinder profile. <laughs> my wife. Uh, Congratulations. So yeah, thank you so much. And uh, and then a little more funny backstory on that too is my sister like the week before was like, take that photo off. So I kept it on, and the rest is history. But that photo, we were in Egypt. Um, it was a family trip. Also interesting story too because that was during um, when Gaddafi was getting overthrown in Egypt. So that that uh, the end of the trip, we actually um, had um, big. I would not riot, but big kind of um, uh, demonstrations were happening, and um, our hotel was basically like, "You need to get out of here." But right before that, I took the photo with the camel, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, um, we for somehow the crowd basically cleared because it was at the Great Pyramids, and so there's no one in the background. It just happened to work out that way. And then last little anecdote about that story was right before the camel was kind of like talking to the, our, our guide, like he wanted something. And the guide was like, okay, here you go. And he let the camel smoke a cigarette. <laughs> so that's the camel picture story. Yeah, it's a great, I love the photo. It's, it's cool. Yeah, and, and great conversation starter. <laughs> yeah. And also marriage yeah, um, yeah, starter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, when I was looking at what you did in school, it seemed like you studied economics in college. I studied economics. I love economics, so I'm a huge crypto guy too. Um, love kind of thinking about money. It sounds kind of bad, but I just I think I find it really fascinating, um, and which is actually kind of one of the reasons we started Matrino was um, we had done a startup before that was mostly just straight up B two C and dealt with chat. Um, and we found it really hard to monetize. So the next thing I wanted to do basically was kind of provide the rails for our financial infrastructure. Um, kind of thinking like, you know, fisherman eats a lot of fish. Let's do something that involves a lot of money. What made you interested in finance? Or- 
I think I'm just naturally really curious about it. I mean, it's such a big part of basically everyone's life. It's unavoidable. And it has so many... Um, it's so misunderstood in a lot of ways. And it has... It's. I mean, it's just so interesting from a how people conduct themselves. Like, you know, think about... Um, inheritance and how often it can disrupt a whole family system because people are, you know, squabbling about money. Like, it's so powerful, yet when you talk to people that have a lot of money, too, it's like, it's actually not that important, but it can, it's just interesting. It's such an interesting kind of um, tool we use, and so I find it fascinating. I remember reading Sapiens earlier Mm. last year, and they had a whole spiel with, like, money and how it's one of the things that bound civilizations together because you could yeah. do commerce. You did not have to carry a cow in your pocket and it gave everyone a common means of exchange. Yep. Yeah. I mean, and that's why I call it as like a tool. It's like a language slash tool of um, just helping transact value. So I know plenty of people that are interested in finance and some of them are now bankers and, or they're on wall street. What made you decide to do startups? Um, I think um, platforms are really interesting in the same way that um, I find it really interesting in kind of game economies, how people engage with each other. But when you deal with a platform, it's actually kind of real-world gamification of um, just dealing with people and just trying to help make sure that uh, things are more efficient. So I think that when dealing with startups, you can actually... um, make changes a lot faster um, and experiment more with different types of approaches versus um, yeah, going into like typical financial jobs. I think it's a lot harder to do something new. Was that always how you thought about it? That you would join a startup, start a startup? Um, or was there some transition point when you made that decision? I don't think I don't know if it was that I just really wanted to do startups, even though it definitely seems that way in hindsight. Um, It definitely feels more like it's coming at it from, I don't like um, someone telling me what to do. So like, I just want to do my own thing. Um, That's how I, I just have a very strong kind of like, let me do me kind of thing. So, um, before we talk about Maturino, which is your current thing, um, you were working on a B2C platform before uh, called Bark. Yep. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, God, it's it's actually kind of a little painful just because we didn't sell it. We just kind of started to go into Maturino before we did anything with it. But we spent a lot of time on that um, startup. So we... Um, Yeah, basically the initial concept was let's let people have a way to communicate with each other as they're browsing the same websites. And it was initially supposed to be a desktop app. Our team, and we built a lot into it. So this was before Discord. This was basically before Slack. This was, um, so that's a little, (laughs) but we built a lot into it. Um, We had like real-time language translation in it. So people get from different languages. Languages could speak with each other. Um, we we actually added. Speaking of finance, we added Bitcoin into it. So we were dealing with Bitcoin back before it was even over a hundred dollars. We had built it into the application. We used WebRTC to do voice and video chat into it. We did everything. Um, 
we really there's I could go on. We had so um, yeah, we we built it all. We had a team I think at its max at about fifteen, and we were really pushing for a B to C play, trying to get critical. Like chat is hard. Communities are tough, especially with something that I think was as ambitious as Mark was trying to be. Really needed critical mass, which we weren't really able to get there. And then we needed to monetize, and basically ran out of money. So. Um, Super fun, super interesting. I mean, we got to deal with a lot of different communities, which is really relevant to what we're doing now. Um, basically, we pivoted a little bit through it, so that way websites were embedding the chat so that they had a way to just help their community um, just engage with each other. Um, but And we were charging a very nominal fee. We were charging $5 a month for that. Um, so really needed mass scale, and frankly, we weren't great salesmen. At the, at the time, it's definitely debatable now too, but we just cared about the product and had to learn the hard way how to market, um, which in hindsight, there's lots of things we could have done differently, like go the Slack route or the Discord route. But um, yeah, it was a great experience. That was, <laughs> I got out of that. Um, so that's it in a nutshell. When you look back at that experience and you think of like the tough, challenges and the things that you had to overcome were they most more on the technical side or were they more on the everything outside no i don't think it technically it wasn't challenging my so i have the same co-founder as i did in that startup uh, his name guy named mario gutierrez he's brilliant um and is great also at at um helping our you know new guys to our dev team learn and he you know this is to a fault but he loves experimenting with new code, so we'd constantly be looking at new frameworks. Um, so we didn't have a lot of technical challenges, um, and probably, you know, skipping over a lot of things that we did have to kind of bang our heads in for a long time. But um, I think most of the challenges that I've seen in, in startups is just dealing with people. You know, um, as teams grow in particular, it's really... You know, people just have real lives dealing with that, dealing with people knocking along with other people. Also, um, you know, it's a blessing and a curse, people being really passionate about what we're doing. So when we take directions that, um, you know, not everyone likes to take, it's dealing with that kind of um, change. Those tend to be the harder issues to deal with. Yeah, when I think of online communities, um, I think of, like, Dig and Reddit, and especially what happened with, where, like, Dig used to be the fun one of the fun pages of the internet, and then they made some moves. The community didn't like it, and then it all went away. Yeah, I think that's a great example of um, communities that you know. I think when you want to be a part of the community, you want to hear like your voice is heard. And in Dig's example, they really kind of made it so certain tier of users were able to get their content on the front page really easily. So it wasn't a democratic kind of experience for everybody. And I think that's where Reddit kind of was able to serve that and continues to do a decent job of still making it so there's not this kind of elite tier of user base. From your um, experiences with Bark, what... um like, what do you take away from that? Like, the, I guess if you had to compile, like, a list of, like, five le- lessons or N less, top N lessons that you've learned from that experience. I think most of it deals with the marketing side of it. When it does come to technical, I think we made one very critical error, which is super unfortunate, but 
um, I think this is actually a pretty good lesson, which was we we wanted to get user feedback, so we actually went to colleges and different areas, started getting people's user feedback, and um, we had a desktop app initially, which is what basically Discord, most people use Discord for, and Slack, and um, we had a um, operating system, basically app that was running, that was communicating with our desktop app and the browser to tell us what chat rooms people were in. And so we got a lot of feedback to build it into a browser extension, which is what we ended up doing and pivoted towards before we launched, which I think basically killed it because you would have to reload the extension every time you went to a new site. Like imagine reloading Slack every time you go to a new site. It's just not feasible. Um, so we listen too much to our, <laughs> our potential users. That was, um, I think, a good lesson. I mean, you kind of, uh, uh, and the line is really hard to distinguish on getting user feedback and, and doing what you think is right. Um, it's definitely a dance of sorts of like, because uh, I also think that the most important thing you should be doing as you try to get product market fit is listening to your customer and really trying to understand what it is they want. And that's, you know, product market fit is arguably the, the toughest thing to do as a startup and, or a company adapting to the market. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned like listening to your customers, like a little too literally or too much as like yeah. was one of the takeaways. Cause I know that like most startups that I work with or I talk to like they have the opposite problem where they don't have customers or they don't talk to their customers. Um, but you're right. It's like listening to what your customers want, but also adding in your own judgment of that. It's a really tough thing to do. Um, but you, I think it's imperative to get good at that. And then you mentioned that the other thing that you took away was marketing. Um, how do you think you would have handled marketing like knowing what you do now? Yeah, so I should clarify that and say it's, it's less marketing, it's more sales. I think um, sales is the big thing to, to learn how to get right. Um, and we had no one on the team that was good at sales at Bark. And um, we weren't good at it. Um, we had most of the, almost every single website that had it, and we had thousands of websites, um, came to us. So almost, I want to say we didn't get a single customer when we did outreach, whether that was a cold email, cold call, going into companies like local companies, not a single one. So um, we have had to get better at sales at Matcherino. We're continuing to get better on it, and that's what I work on basically most of my time at the moment. Um, but you know, just learning how to do that is super, super important. And how does one get better at sales? What do you do differently now? Um, just keep on trying to, to get someone. I mean, um, pricing, experimenting with pricing. Um, and I think really figuring out all the different steps that you need to take. Like some people are willing to, to go to the end right away because they've seen you somewhere else. They've seen your product or service somewhere else and they're ready to pay you money. Um, but knowing what those different, um, those exact steps are in the sales process for your specific product or service, and then knowing how to take someone to the next one and identifying kind of where they are in that sales process, that's like the most important thing. Yeah, I find that um, I do a consulting business yeah. on the side, and a lot of that has to do with trust. 
and for different clients, it's where am I? <coughs> where is her like trust? Like if they yeah. came inbound from like an article I've written or something that they know about or a referral, then we, it's very easy to like move to the very end of that process. I think exactly you're right. The trust is the most important thing. Um, and that's why when people come to you, they're already that trust for them. They've seen it somewhere else out there. Hell, hey, it works for this, this person. So <laughs> I trust it to that extent. And then there are things you can do when you're reaching out to someone else to help with trust. Things like a face-to-face meeting goes a long way because then you have that level of trust established. Then also things like talking about your pricing openly and how much money you take and help with establishing trust. Um, or connecting them to existing customers helps with trust. But you're, everything basically is about getting that trust up there so that the amount that they spend, you're basically telling them it's worth it and you're asking them to trust you. And so whatever you can do to help with that trust. So I completely agree. Trust is like the name of the game. And no arguments here. So let's talk about Metrogino. How did you end up pivoting from Mark into this? How did it start? Yeah, so what happened was we were... Honestly, just getting bored of Bark. We knew we had to monetize. We knew it was kind of going to take a big shift, and we were just didn't see light anywhere to have the end of the tunnel. And so my co-founder and I liked the video game space. We knew it was exploding, and we started to just play around with some ideas. Um, initial idea, which is one you'll see a lot in the esports space, which is the concept of uh, money matches. So like, oh, hey, let me play this person for five bucks. Um, that tends to not work out pretty much every single time, um, which I can go into, but it just doesn't, it's not a good idea. We learned that super, super early on, I think based on our, on our experience with Bark 2, just trying to um, do it with a couple test cases, we, we were able to see, hey, this is not going to be a big thing, or at least it's in its current incarnation. So um, the genesis of Matrino came when we were fiddling around with ideas and then um, we were looking at a forum for StarCraft and two people were going to play against each other and fans automatically started messaging like, hey, I want to chip in 10 bucks. Hey, I'll chip in 20 bucks. And one of the moderators came in, gave their email and said, hey guys, PayPal me the money. I'll make sure it goes to the winners. And so that was really, so that's where we had the initial concept and it was really, it was really like an aha moment. And it wasn't just like, oh, hey, let's just solve this potential use case. But I think it really was something where we realized that this, each and all these fans that wanted to donate money, they're basically so untapped in terms of how they can, not just financially, but in so many different ways, help contribute to this event that's going to happen. Um, that was the that was the genesis for it, um, and we put together a prototype, and then applied to TechStars, then launched it during TechStar, got in, launched it during TechStars, and have been iterating on it since. And while you were doing Metro, you know, what happened to Bark? Was that still something you were maintaining, or did you decide? So to we still move? had lots of paying users, and what we did was we basically just said, "Sorry, guys, we're shutting down," and we um, refunded people's money for the last like month or so. And then um, we should have tried to go out and find someone to buy the technology. Like I said, we were doing things, especially at that time, because that was about five years ago, really cutting edge technology in a lot of different ways. 
like Bitcoin, people were tipping each other, playing some games we had built into it. Um, WebRTC was a new technology for doing peer-to-peer video and, and voice communication, where we had private channels, um, friends lists, like like I said, we had you can embed multimedia into it. We made it so you can embed it into websites. It was super lightweight. It was fast. Like it's crazy all the things we did, and we should have sold it, but we never had the time. We just had to jump onto Matcherino, and Matcherino was like. Um, I want to say rocket ship, but it was just a really fast moving, and we had zero bandwidth to really do much of anything else. Um, we thought that we would do tech stars and, and go back to San Diego in three months, but then we raised money, and it's just been a whirlwind ever since. So um, it basically just, you know, it's like um, it's like you know when you have a startup, it's like your baby. So I feel like I abandoned my baby. Basically, it's not a, it's not a fun feeling, but. That's kind of what happened. Well, I think another way of looking into it is, well, I think the hardest thing to do sometimes is to walk away from yeah. something that's not working. Um, and I know founders that they show hanging on to something that they worked over for like half a decade now. Yeah. And at some point, like there is this, it's this walking the line between like tenacity, but also knowing when to call it. Yeah. I, and I do think that we, I mean, we called it, we, we were not going to continue pursuing it for better or for worse just because we had an opportunity in front of us. But um, one of the other things we did is we didn't have a lot of investors, but we had a handful of investors, friends, family, and some of the users actually that were able to invest. And we converted all of the Bark equity into Matrino equity. So um, definitely didn't leave anybody hanging. Nice. I was going to ask about what happened to those original Bark investors. Yep, yep, yep. No, um, you know, we're always a big fan of treat people how you want to be treated, whether it's an investor or a user or, you know, friend or family. So, And so when you guys went through the Techstars program, um, what was that like? And- oh, it was great. So the managing director is a guy named Chris DeVore, um, and he is one of my favorite people in Seattle. He, um, you know, we had been a part of another incubator in San Diego. Um, they were great. They didn't do any investment, but they also gave everything away for free. And we just didn't feel like we got a lot out of it. I think they were dipping their toes into how to be a co-working space. I think I've heard some great stories on how they've improved. And so we were expecting a little bit of the same with Techstars. We wanted the money. So we're like, yeah, that's great. You can help us. Okay, okay, give us the money. So we, frankly, kind of came in with low expectations, but the Techstars team and the program, we it was like a such a... A breath of fresh air like the way that um they connected us with a lot of mentorship was a great experience not just because we got good feedback but because we got all mixed types of feedback so again learning how to digest and accurately kind of approve or acknowledge the feedback was helpful there and then one of the better things is um was demo day so that at the end of Techstars, you do a big pitch to a bunch of um potential investors and um, you really have to hone down that pitch and that, that quick story. And I think as someone that had not really done that before, um, it was huge because when you're doing, um, you're pitching investors, that s- story um, is so important to get right 
um, and why it's important. Like, there's just so much from basically it helped with investors and how helping to pitch. But that's not just for investors. I think pitching a brand or even a customer is helpful in how you can tell the story that you want people to be a part of. And I think in the beginning we talked about sales, and I yeah. mean that's also pitching and communicating your idea. Even though you have this like really expansive like history and where you want to take it, but getting people in and like that first ten seconds, first thirty seconds. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's one of the most important things. And it, when someone's telling you their idea and it's it's not really artic- articulated well, or it's just so open ended, or it's too narrowly focused can really lose someone even if you are onto the right path. But I will say typically I find there's such a high correlation between someone that can articulate that story and get someone excited in it and how well that platform or service like actually ends up being. Uh, I totally agree. I think I hear it um, like in the entrepreneur circles, it's like a lot of, um, what do you call it? Um, annoyance at like getting the pitch and yeah. it's like you know I have this great idea like, yeah, it's like I don't even care like why does my pitch need to be good everyone's gonna love my product yeah and it's like why to sell it into 30 seconds there's so much more I need to say and, yeah. but there is something to be said about like if you really know your idea inside mm-hmm. out then you should be able to capture that essence of it within like a 30 second time frame I wish there wasn't that kind of correlation you just build something amazing but there is, and I think that there's more to it, and it's it's um, there's something there with like how well someone can succinctly say what they're doing and get someone excited, and how well it's going to actually go. Yeah. So, can you tell us a little bit now yeah. how Matchalino is doing, and for people who are not familiar, like what you guys are about? So basically, so Matchalino started as a way for. Um, Basically, like a prize pool escrow is how we, when we started getting traction. So the way I describe it is imagine like a local tennis tournament. You know, someone wins. Some guy Bob wins the tournament, gets a hundred bucks, and everyone in the audience is like, "Okay, cool. I guess this guy is going to get paid." I don't know like when he's going to get paid or how much he's going to get paid or if he's going to get paid, but I hope he's just going to get paid. And so we basically created an escrow system for prize pools, make it transparent, compliant, easy to pay out. Which sounds nice, and it was nice, but um, a lot of things, or a lot of, so esports is a very new industry, and a lot of people see some of these big tournaments that happen every year and think that's kind of what esports is like all the time. Um, a 99 point whatever percent of tournaments are really tiny grassroots and, um, there are issues all over the place when it comes to money. In fact, even the ones with the publishers. Um, I don't want to name names, but the publishers, you can just do a quick Google search, you'll see that publishers have a hard time paying out prize pools, even the top publishers. Um, so it's a huge problem for players and basically everyone in the space, uh, the money issues. So we, we kind of solved that. And um, kind of to make a long story short, we helping solve those problems, our main customer is what we call the, the TO, the tournament organizer. So this was a nice to have for them, but they really just care about monetizing. Um, and so everything we do is to help these that price pool grow and the organizer get paid more money um, through our kind of suite of services uh, that all basically deal with money. So we have um, registration software and ticketing software that we built to help with these tournaments so that part of the money can go directly to the prize pool. It's also built specifically for esports tournaments. So things like having a player register for multiple different games 
paying the entry fee for that game and part to that organizer and or venue. We make that really easy to do, like no other registration software out there. Then we also have, uh, we built like an e-commerce component. So that way people can buy things like t-shirts, hoodies, or coaching from players or whatever the organizer wants to do, where we make it very easy to rev share. So you can have some money go to the prize pool, have some money go to the organizer, maybe even have some money go to that player. Um, And then what we're really focusing on now is um, sponsors and brands. So if you look at traditional sports or basically any other sport out there, most of the money comes from brands. And we have built new sponsorship capability to help brands reach these fans. So the way it works is instead of a brand, you know, the the old model is a brand goes to an event, says, hey guys, here's some money, here's our logo, maybe here's our commercial, can you play this? And we're gonna hopefully get a lot of impressions and hopefully it's gonna drive our business forward. What we do is we say, hey, brand or sponsor, what is it that you want the audience to actually do? Maybe it's to join a loyalty program. Maybe it's to download an app or visit a website or engage with them on social media. And then when the audience does that action, then a micro sponsorship goes directly to the prize pool and to the organizer. So it's a performance-based sponsorship model, and it's working out really well for us. We were basically doubling the amount of actions that we've uh, got every month. Um, We... We have two big brands right now, GameStop and 24-Hour Fitness, and um, the tournament organizers are very, I guess it sounds bad, but they're reliant on the Quest, which is what we wanted. We wanted a system, an infrastructure for organizers to bootstrap themselves, and we've done that. Um, And now we're getting more and more brands interested in in trying this technology and also seeing the benefits of... um, this demographic, you know, esports fans are very passionate. They, um, the eyeballs continue to grow, and um, there are um, not a lot of sponsors, especially in smaller events. Like there are events all the time where we'll have thirty thousand people concurrently watching, and sometimes there's zero sponsors. So how? So it's it's just a it's a it's a very right for innovation. So there's a lot to unpack with what you just said there. Um, and I want to go, when you said that it was difficult for people to just manage price pools and pay out players, oh, yeah. even for big publishers, what, um, what were the challenges? like? The challenges for them to yeah. pay out? Yeah. It's also when you, it's like, it's very oh, simple. Like when you're doing a tournament and you have to pay out the winners at the end, you basically have to go out and manually ask all those winners, like, hey, how should I pay you? Or yeah, what's your, your PayPal? Email. Yeah, what's, what's your, your PayPal? PayPal? Exactly. Exactly. That's that's all it is. And um, it can be really tough when you're dealing with a lot of players. It sounds like it's like not a big deal, and it kind of isn't that big a deal, but um, like we've had we still <laughs> one of our one of our guys told me last week, he's like, We looked at some accounts. We've had players that haven't collected their their winnings in over a year, and one of them was, um, I think it was like $8,000. So it can be really tough as someone that's on the administrative side of a tournament to keep on pinging the players and asking them for their information. And then um, it's just tough sometimes. (laughs) Like, it's just logistically 
tough, but it's mostly not the fault of the organizer. It's mostly the, or sorry, the players. It's mostly the fault of the organizer. A lot of times they won't even have the money ready. They'll say, oh, it's a $5,000 prize pool. They don't even tell the asterisks of that, oh, we need that 5000 from a sponsor, so we hope we get a sponsor. Um, yeah, it's just, and then one of the things too that when we started with it, it wasn't just the idea of an escrow, it's the idea of that you can donate directly into the escrow too. So there's a base prize pool. And as a fan, if you're gonna donate 20 bucks or 100 bucks, you wanna see where that money goes. You don't wanna put it into a black box because if you do, most of the time those black boxes, the money's not gonna go where it should go. So we are all about transparency and that's um, why, it, yeah, it's the escrow and that. And then it's just surprisingly difficult. Um, even for the publishers. Yeah, I mean, logistics, it completely makes sense. I sit on yeah. a couple of housing associations and different things, and it's the challenges we deal with are like stuff that you would be able to solve with an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. But there are challenges nevertheless because it's people, and yeah. you need yeah. to coordinate people. When you're dealing with, yeah, coordinating people, and then um, usually no one's in charge of actually paying it out, and then it ends up falling on someone. But it's just something that it's so overlooked. Um, there are just it creates issues and you'll see that there's issues all over the place in esports with money and so now that you know you've built up a platform and you've hosted it seems like a lot of tournaments um, how does it look how because like you said esports it's a relatively new industry and all the projections are like this crazy thing going to the right about where viewership is going to be but as somebody who's been now in a platform that's been in the center of all these different tournaments, what have you noticed? Like, has there been any trends? Has there been any changes? Any surprising findings? Um, a lot of the the things that I think we benefit from being in the middle is seeing... I think the, the name of the game right now is the whole industry is sustainability. So you're seeing publishers do things like creating leagues, um, and a lot of times they're not built in a way it's sustainable. Um, I, to to kind of maybe give a better example, this is what we tell publishers that at least are willing to listen. Because um, publishers are trying all sorts of things to actually make an eSport. Um, and the way that we think you should look at it as someone that's trying to create an eSport if you have a new game is you want to make it so players can do this for a full time. Like it's that simple. Like, and also organizers. If I'm going to organize an event that's that will help promote that game, publishers should should more do more than just appreciate that. Um, but I'm not going to continue to organize these tournaments if I lose money. And make no mistake, too, it takes a lot of time and energy to run these tournaments. So most of the people doing it lose money, but it's labor of love. So organizers still will do this. One of the examples I say that helps kind of just set the stage is we were working with a pretty large organization um, in Heroes of the Storm, which is a Blizzard game. And they started using Matcherino and they made money. And this organization didn't know what to do with the money. Because they never, it was like, wait, what are we supposed to do with money? We never had money before. So, um, so, anyway, um, Sustainability is huge, huge, huge. These players want to do this sustainably. Like, they want nothing more than to do this sustainably. Same with organizers, but they don't have the means to do that. So we started with ways for the community to basically bootstrap itself. Fans can donate themselves. Um, 
that works. It works way better than nothing. Most of the times, a tournament that isn't using Matrino and then starts using it, their their prize pool will 2x, 3x at the minimum. Um, and though, but that's just the I think that's just the base building block. Then it really I think is going to come from brands and publishers getting involved. Um, publishers, we think it's just going to take longer. They move slowly. They're hyper concerned about their their IP, so. Um, they just don't tend to be super innovative, surprisingly, in the space. But the brands, I think, is where we're going to see a lot of where the money comes from. It, it will it, it will anyway, I think, ultimately. But we're just trying to give them the best tools to reach these audiences. And how's your work with brands going nowadays? Is it mostly you going out to brands, brands and telling them about this? Or have you seen like inbound folk? Yeah, we've, we've started to see inbound. So in the past week, we brought on three smaller brands that are completely inbound and those we show them how to get set up with our tools it's completely self-serve and with bigger brands we're managing it ourselves just so we can help make sure it goes as best as possible um but i'm trying to think there's, there's a lot to talk about with the brands um Brands too also don't really know what they want or how what they can get out of this or how to engage it. So when we ask a big brand, every single time I've talked to a brand too and asked, "Hey, why are you interested in esports? Like, how'd you hear about this?" And it's oh, okay, my kid plays Fortnite and I've heard of Ninja. So they're very new to this space and it's it's tough for us because we're trying to educate them about the space. They want to learn more about it and then how we help. Um, so we have a decent amount of challenges. It's not that easy to describe Matcherino too. The other thing that we have um, going against us is a lot of times a brand that has done something, whether they sponsored a team or a tournament or some sort of anything, um, there's been a really bad ROI. So trying to help people that are basically like, you know, burn victims and show them like, hey, let's try this again and let us show you what we can do. When brands engage with esports what what separates the successful brands with the ones that like you said are more of the burn victims of these campaigns what do um, they do differently i would say some of the best brands that we've seen just go really hard into this space so someone like red bull they do their own custom events where they have much more control over it um so they know exactly what they want it's really expensive I think you, you, I can't tell you whether they it's it's an ROI on it. It's definitely better money spent than a lot of other ways, um, but there are so many. Yeah, I mean, I think in the future you'll see a lot of brands have their own teams that just manage esports because it's going to be such a big thing and it needs hands-on um, approach and and each product or service is different so knowing the best way to engage the the fans and what can one of the other things people don't understand too especially as a brand that's just getting into it is that um just like in sports the golf audience is different than the basketball audience like these gaming communities differ widely um in and and race and ethnicity and gender so knowing which ones to go after is an important question a lot of times that's just a new concept that they didn't even know about um, so there's a lot that brands need to learn. And I think just knowing that they um, even want to be in this space is something that they're just now starting to learn about. 
Um, but, and it's not just brands too. Like one of the things we work with too are schools and colleges and high schools. You know, they're now, just now, I think in the past, you know, maybe two years, like, oh, this, maybe this is something we should do. And how to do it and how to make it sustainable. There's so many things that people um, are jumping into building out big coliseums without any idea how to, um, if, if, like, what the, what, how to make money on it. Yeah, it's a field that is going fast, but I mean, also life with opportunity and these unanswered questions. Yeah. And you make a really good point about, you know, different communities being different. And so, like, I as a brand today, if I don't know much about games, and I just see, like, oh, here's StarCraft versus here's, like, a cooking game, like, how do I begin that process? Do you have a cheat list of, like, okay, if you want to find these sort of folks, these are the games you should be advertising in, but how do you walk people through that? Well, so we just started as of, like, a week ago. Well, one of the things we're doing as part of our sponsorship package is in the beginning, we'll offer, we do a market analysis that we'll, we'll give to them. So, hey, here are where we saw your um, you know, company, your brand resonate most with these kind of communities, and here's why. Um, so it's, it's tough. It's, it's, it's like asking, too, like, oh, well, is, what is my product going to be better in golf or football? Like, it's, it's tough to, unless you actually do some sort of proof of concept, like, that's the only way you're really going to start to figure it out. Right. And it seems like then probably you need to do a lot of hand-holding or a lot of, like, educating your clients. We do. We have to do a ton. And um, <laughs> it's just so funny. Like, we got a big customer... And uh, we were doing a big event with them, and they wanted to, to watch it. And then they just didn't even watch. So, like, I, I don't know. It's, it's so misunderstood um, that I, I want to make it sound, like, so grim. But um, I just I think what we're going to see happen in the next year is we're going to figure out or brands will start to see what models are working, what isn't working, and then double down on those that are working. Um, and those that care enough and see the ROI um, that's pretty vague but um, it is it is a good space to, to advertise in one of the other things we're doing too is we're not just doing um, this performance based sponsorship one of the other big trends I think we'll see in, in this demographic or this industry and also others is um, I think the old the old kind of model is a brand will create a one size fits all kind of um, promotion, whether that's a commercial, um, and then they'll try to put that into as many communities as possible. Where we're having the local announcers or influencers make the content for the brands too, and that's done really well. Yeah, it, it, I'll be excited to see how this space evolves because it seems like there's a lot of. Yeah, I, one of the things we might see too are brands having, you know, they'll sponsor a lot of teams today. I think we might see big companies have their own team. It's super cost effective. You have way more control. Um, but who knows? I mean, I think it can evolve in a lot of different ways. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you already see that, like, not even as marketing, but I used to work at Amazon, and mm -hmm. Amazon, we had our own StarCraft team. Like, that was just employee Oh, cool. oh yeah, yeah, like employee league. Yeah, and they would face off against the Microsoft League. And, yeah, no, those are awesome. Yeah. So you already have that at the grassroots. Um, the other party that I was thinking about in all this was, like, the organizers. Yes. And how do you organizers, like, tournament organizers today mainly make money? 
like I think of I don't know if this is like a fair comparison but like I think of movie theaters where like you know they don't really make money on the movies but they make money on the concessions is yeah. there a similar dynamic for game tournaments yes so here's kind of how it looks for the organizers they make money in only one of basically two ways one is to do things like entry fees which it's really tough to make a lot of money there basically all the money for everyone is going to come from brands or sponsors sponsorships so organizers typically start they again mostly do it starting as labor love then they want to turn it into a business because they like doing what they're doing and then they'll have to basically go put a deck together about the event how many eyeballs they get what kind of players they get and then they'll go start pitching to brands and like i was saying before with bark like we didn't have any sales experience these guys don't have any sales experience and they don't have, offer the the reach for the brands to even care um and then even if they do get a brand to care and the brand does sponsor it it's really tough for them to continue getting sponsorship because the audience while they are really passionate just putting a logo on the stream um doesn't really ever move the needle. I mean, this is can be a really finicky audience in that they're so ADD in a lot of ways, unless you're doing something to actively engage them. Um, it can be just a big waste of money to sponsor an event um, if not done correctly. Right. Um, it's, it definitely sounds it's interesting, but also a hard business. Um, yeah, it sounds like it's all, I guess, funny games. But, um, which I'm sure there's plenty of that involved. So. There are. There, there's a lot of funny games. But um, it's it's definitely easy to just um, not be able to to spend money effectively. For an esports tournament, I would guess it might be different depending on the community and the game. But how much of a tournament is offline versus online? Most of them are online right now. Um, offline... It's growing. It's all the reason being is it's just this is one of the benefits of esports is you can have it online. All the players, all the announcers, it's completely done. All the fans online. It's super cost effective. It's really easy for everyone involved. Physical events, um, typically, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. I was just at one last week in Virginia for a speed gaming. A lot of times they'll rent out hotels for these events um, or venues. Casinos are also a growing venue. Lots of logistics involved, simple things like having fast internet, um, all the streaming equipment. I mean, the event I was at last week, they had to, you know, people don't realize this, but they had to go out and rent 100 or so CRT TVs. These are the old school, really heavy TVs um, that some of these games basically require to, to play on. Um, so, and it took the staff, most of the staff is all free volunteers just again people are so passionate about it um but it took you know so months and months of planning to to do it um but there are certain types of tournaments that really lend itself well to in person um and their viewership is huge it's a whole new kind of genre of gaming it's called speed gaming that's where um people play usually old school games and try to race through them but in the past couple years again that kind of community has skyrocketed um, and it's really great for Match Arena so I think this last weekend too they broke a bunch of records on um, the prize pool sizes um, and then you'll see like lots of um, different types of organizations or businesses are making their own arenas that's everything from universities um, to um, even you know like casinos and, and 
Um, we work with a, a big venue called Esports Arena. They're doing things really well, but um, it's expensive. And uh, and then you're seeing like land cafes too, or basically esports centers. Um, and it, it's it's tough to do in person, but um, there are people that are doing it right. So one thing that I hear a lot in like trend reports is that esports is going to be mainstream in like X number of years. Um, and something I'm always curious about is like, what does mainstream esports look like to you? Um, and I guess another prefix of this is like a lot of gamers are now like they're very passionate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like when I think of mainstream, I think of like uh, like the casual observer or like the people that casually game. Like, does mainstream mean that you're going to involve those people in, or will they turn into like more cash, passionate community members? But like, what is mainstream esports? Yeah, about? a couple of thoughts on that. It's more like bullet points. One, I don't think we're going to see a lot of like um, anyone older, anyone that's not currently interested in it, convert. Certainly, that will happen. For some people, but I just don't see that being like, oh, yeah, my parents are now like eSport fans. I don't think that's ever going to happen. Um, another interesting kind of bullet point, I think this deals with live streaming to an extent too, is it's oddly um, in its own bubble. Like, you know, people hear about eSports now in news, but for a long, long time, it just kind of exists separately from, I guess, mainstream. Like, you just don't really hear, see see about it. And people kind of behave in private about it. You know, it's like, they might they might go and play at night, but then never tell anyone that they work with. Um, so, that's a little bit weird. Um, what, and, you know, mainstream, I think it's just going to look the same as traditional sports. You're going to see people wearing jerseys of the teams they like, um, you know, Again, apparel of the, the games they like and the, the players that they play in it. Um, you'll see a lot more media, things like TV shows, movies related to the video games and or the players and communities. Um, you'll see it in bars when you go in. Instead of you know football on TV, you might see a League of Legends match. Um, that's, to me, what mainstream is probably going to look like. And I definitely drank the Kool-Aid. I think this will be bigger than traditional sports. Um, what I say to investors and um, people interested in the spaces, the way I, th- I look at it is humans have always loved playing games. There's always loved the competitive element for, throughout human history. Um, games are just becoming digital now. It's, it's not some crazy big shift. I think it has so many characteristics of traditional sports or traditional you know, big audiences that like watching the games. It's just digital. And the connection I just made as you were talking is that I think of like the work that people do and how like primarily in the past it was, you know, pounding locks and like doing very physical things. But now like a lot of it like is more knowledge based. It's software engineering, it's law, it's medicine. And I think like maybe you can make a similar analogy to sports. So like before, like right now we still have like the basketballs and the footballs and they're great. But also knowing that like now we have more ways of expressing ourselves and of that, I guess, like, a knowledge-based sport is, like, a game. Yeah, I think it's kind of just, like, um, barrier to entry, too. Like, if I want to go play a game of football with my friends, like, think about all I have to do just to start playing a very simple game versus I can start playing online. I don't even need my friends, and I can start playing a game on my phone, on my computer, basically, like, give me 10 seconds, I'll start playing a game right now. Um, It has... Yeah, so there's there's a lot 
going for it that I, so many things and then also the worldwide audience like the world I think part of the reason soccer is so popular is because the world gets to engage with these huge um, tournaments where you represent your country so esports has that going for it too and within all this where do you see Metro you know we want every single tournament to use Maturino. Um And the way I see it is um, our customer, the tournament organizer, when they look at a platform like ours, um, they're not so much judging its UI, UX, or what it stands for. It's about the results. So if you're going to use this and you're going to have better financial results, very similar to someone using like Kickstarter, If I'm gonna if I'm gonna crowdfund a product, I don't really care so much, um, you know, the Kickstarter brand or the Indiegogo brand or what it is. It's where am I gonna make the most money? So that's what we're focusing on is making the most money, and that's where I think if you can help these events be that much more financially viable and sustainable, then there shouldn't be a lot of reason why every tournament doesn't use the best tools out there. It reminds me of uh, somebody mentioned this about the gold rush in California, where like when everyone was prospecting and looking for gold, it was a great place to sell shovels and things. Yes, yeah, yeah, and that's I think very true for what we're doing. I mean, if you're, we work with organizers that are highly ambitious, have plans for world domination. We're like, that's great. Let's help you with whatever you want to do. We want to make it so you can harness the communities, and then also we can connect you to sponsors. Um, in a way where it's performance based so your grand idea that's going to have so many passionate fans because you're going to build a big community we want to help you do that it sounds like a great master plan <laughs> yeah. um, it is it's a lot of fun um, it's definitely um, interesting from a kind of wild west perspective you know there's no one else that's doing the escrow stuff that we're doing also no one doing um direct donations or micro kind of performance-based sponsorship. So there's a lot that we're learning on a weekly basis, um, and it is a lot of fun. Um, and we definitely see light at the end of the tunnel for our business, um, and we are working hard to get there. Has there been anything that caught you by surprise or something that, that you've taken away from running this for? Um, in terms of just like who the customer is or who the customers are or like maybe where you thought you would make money or where you thought the palms might be but they turned out to be somewhere else um, just lessons um, I'm sure there's a, a million lessons I'm going to think right after this nothing is like jumping out at me in terms of like wow that just like caught us by surprise other than it's tough I mean it was tough to get the tournaments in the beginning um I think we always thought it would just grow a lot faster. It's been, you know, just like one step in front of the other every single time. Like there's no, there's no, um, yeah, we're not leapfrogging ahead. Um, but it's in a good way. Like it's, yeah. Um, I'm trying to like actually answer that though. Like from the fans, we didn't think sometimes we, I'm, I'm like saying everything that makes us look good, but we didn't think they donate that much in the beginning. Um, We, from the organizer's perspective, we thought that they would, frankly, care a little bit more about this, the like how easy we make it, or then we really learned like, wait, these guys just care about trying to make this sustainable financially, um, and so that's why we're doing everything to to help them there. Um, and I think, like everyone else, we realized that wow, this is actually a lot more ragtag than we thought. Like we thought esports was this like 
you know, huge, well-run oil machine that's just going crazy when really it is ragtag. Um, these communities and and um, how the how everything works. I think that's been true of basically every industry I've ever like. <laughs> peek behind the curtain at yeah you peek behind the curtain and it's a lot of of uh things being done manually people trying different things and um trying to figure out how how to make um something that just has long-term sustainability yeah so sounds great then that there are tools out there that will help them do that yeah yeah um i have more questions but we're getting close to the end of the show so I'm going to transition to my closing questions, which I ask everyone. And the first one is, what is something that has recently inspired you? Um, maybe I'll just use last week, being there with the fans um, that are watching. Like, it's a whole new... Like, they're just so excited about their community. It's always really nice to go to these events and see everyone there and how much, um, you know, we're helping, but also their community is just getting together to help and support it. Like, that is inspiring. Um, and this was a physical uh, This is a physical yeah, tournament. Event. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then we'll, I'll be going to BlizzCon this week where you will see a lot of passionate fans. People love Blizzard titles. And... Um, the the cosplay you'll see the the crowd cheering during the finals of some of these tournaments like that is definitely uh, inspiring um, and fun. Yep, yep, yeah. The cosplay, especially, I think, always blows me away at just like people making everything. From oh, I, I love looking at all the different cosplay. <laughs> I haven't done it yet. One day. So my next question is, what is something that people might find surprising about you? Uh, probably that I'm pretty boring at home. <laughs> I don't really do much. You know, I really, um, yeah, I just work a lot. Yeah. Um, I know what you mean. When people ask me, it's like, oh, how's your week? It's like, well. Yeah, what did you do? I just relaxed, like, worked. Yeah. <laughs> But that's you know one step in front of the other, and eventually. Well, and I, I think I you know I like it too. Like, mm-hmm. it's what I, I need right now. So yeah. Um, and then next, what is uh, perhaps a principle or an idea that you follow or that you live by? Um, I think treat everyone how you want to be treated. You know, I said it earlier. I think that's the best way. Um, and then also um, just behaving and acting where you know that you're, you know, you're your biggest judge. So um, being honest and transparent is really important to me. I like to think that I behave that you know, pretty much every single day. Um, and uh, long-term, I think that's the best thing to set yourself up for having a good reputation and um, feeling good about yourself. Yeah, that's about trust. Yes, yeah, yeah, trust. About. Yeah. Um, Grant, I just have one last question before I let you go. And this is open-ended. Is there anything we didn't talk about that's on your mind that you want to talk about now? I just, I, I will pitch Matrino every single second. So if you, if you or anyone listening wants to engage with esports fans, we can help you reach these audiences in a way to drive whatever KPIs you're looking to drive. Um, it's a new space, it doesn't even require a lot of money, and we would love to show you what we can do. Sounds good. And we'll have links to Metrogino and everything else cool. in the show thank notes. You. Thank you. In the meantime, uh, thank you so much for coming on. This has been Thank you fun. so much for having me. It's been awesome. 
Hey everyone, this is Kevin again, which is a few more things before you go. First of all, thanks for listening, and if you want to support the show, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple or Google Play. That really helps other people find this show. Until next time, hope you have some great conversations.